Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 72 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. Today, I have a conversation about me. Back in April, I participated in the StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative, a platform for veterans, service members, and military families to share their stories. The goal of StoryCorps is to record and archive military stories in order to bridge the gap between those who have served and those who haven't. In today's episode, I'm interviewed by Jennifer Birch, an Air Force veteran who is involved in advocacy and awareness on a wide range of veterans' issues. You'll also hear a random StoryCorps voice chime in a couple of times, but I hope you enjoy this glimpse into my world. What kind of advice would you give to others that are transitioning out of the military today? Um, well, a couple of different things. As, as you well know, you know me, is uh, it, don't ignore the mental health aspect. I mean, it's, it's, it's critical to um, our transition, the foundation of that. Um, a, a lot of people will focus on make sure you get your resume and dress for success and um, you know, networking and all these things. And those are really like secondary level stuff. If we don't have our mindset right, if we don't have, if we don't make that shift, if we don't decide that we need to do something else, um, if we are struggling with PTSD, depression, substance abuse, and that gets out of control, then we're not going to be as effective as we are. So that's one thing is, is make sure that, you know, um, your, your head's set right. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Dwayne, how did you tell your family and friends that you were going to join the military? So I didn't actually think about joining the military until I realized that the one college I could get into I couldn't afford, or the one I applied to that I couldn't afford, and so I was driving down the road. Uh, and I, uh, my mom was driving, and I said, uh, you know, I've been thinking about the Army. You know, I, I kind of cringed thinking that she was going to freak out. So my dad had been in the Army. And, uh, and, and she didn't freak out. She was like, well, maybe that's something that we shouldn't consider. And I kind of thought that was uh, sort of a green light. 
So then uh, I went down to the recruiting station, uh, talked to a recruiter, went back to my mom and said, I'm joining the Army on Monday. Uh, that's when she freaked out because she thought we were just going to talk about it or think about it or uh, something like that. Um, and so it was a little bit more of a, uh, uh, it was an impulse, um, but then uh, I really kind of got into it as, uh, um, as time went on. And of course, she um, called my father and told my father, you need to talk some sense into your son and uh, kind of uh, get that thing figured out. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. Dwayne, could you elaborate on what you mean by like mom freaked out? Like, do you remember what she said? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I think that the big thing was she's like, you know, wait a minute, I thought we were only going to talk about it. I thought we were going to think about it. She said it, it, for her, it was probably more theoretical. Um, she hadn't gotten it into her mind that it was going to be something that we were actually going to do. Uh, and, and I guess I got the sense that she really didn't think that I was going to do it, maybe. I mean, it, it just it wasn't anything that I'd considered before. Um, and, uh, and, and so at that time, it was the mid-'90s. Um, it was after the Gulf War. There really wasn't any combat going on or anything like that. So it wasn't really the danger thing. Uh, I think it was really just more the shock of, of this wasn't something that they had considered. Uh, and my father had been in Vietnam, and he really didn't want me to join the Army at that point. Uh, and, and so there was a period of time where they had some discussions and some influences and some very uh, long, you know, as long as you live under my house, this kind of thing. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I kind of won them over, and the rest is history. Nice. So how did you choose your branch of service? Why the Army? So uh, when I first went in, I was actually, I had a buddy of mine that was going in the Marine Corps, and I was considering the Marines. Um, and uh, in St. Louis, where I joined, uh, it was one of these multi, you know, uh, recruiting stations. So there were four I had gone into, and I was standing in front of the Marine Corps door, and they were closed, right? The, the door was closed. They were out somewhere. Uh, and the Army door behind me was open. Uh, and this guy behind me was like, hey, what are you doing? You know, and so I, I turned around, and I said, I'm looking to join the military. He said, we're the military. And so uh, if, uh, if the Marine Corps hadn't taken a late lunch, I probably would have joined the Marine Corps. But uh, instead, I ended up joining the Army and, and uh, kind of continued on. So there was no, you know, Air Force or Navy recruiter in that there same office? There, no, they, they, were, they were either farther down the hallway or they were probably taking even longer lunch than the Marine Corps was doing. Uh, no, I mean, it, in, uh, my father had been in the Army. Uh, my uncle was kind of in the 101st. Uh, that was really a big thing. Um, uh, I didn't, I, I sort of joined to get money for college. That was kind of the original idea. Uh, but uh, I, I realized it was the excitement, adventure, and really wild things um, and, and did a lot of fun stuff when I was in. And that's really what I was looking for. Um, and, and so really it was the Army of the Marine Corps were the ones that uh, kind of caught my attention. And so when you joined the Army, what was your MOS or as your job in the, in the Army? Fun story, too. So uh, my dad convinced me to join the Reserves. And when I chose to go from active duty to the Reserves, that really limited my choices. Um, I would have signed up literally for whatever they put in front of me. Like, you know, I was, I, I really didn't care. Um, and when I went down to the processing station, um, they said, well, since you're joining the reserves, you have to, you know, choose from this group. Uh, they, they didn't do, they don't do still combat arms in the army reserves. Um, the other thing that I found out that I hadn't been aware of is that I was colorblind, uh, partially colorblind. So I didn't realize it, of course, uh, until I had gotten to the processing station. So the, uh, the, the, um, the career counselor there showed me this really long list of all the jobs that I qualified for in the reserves. But then he said, since you're colorblind, 
these are the five you get to choose from. Uh, and it was, if I can recall, it was truck driver, uh, mortuary affairs specialist, laundry and bath specialist, and clerk, uh, and supply, I think, right? So, uh, and I sort of tried to negotiate, uh, and I said, uh, which one leaves the soonest? They said, well, you could be a laundry and bath specialist and leave in two weeks, um, but that doesn't come with any bonus money. And I was like, okay, well, and then they said the, the mortuary affairs specialist, yeah, that comes with, like, at, at that point, it was a, a whopping $3,000 in bonus money, which was uh, big money back then, but it would have been spent in a week. But, uh, but then they said, well, that doesn't leave for another year. And I was like, no, let me. So then we compromised. So um, I, I chose a truck driver. So um, when I was a truck driver, and I got like a $1,500 bonus. Uh, again, it seemed like a really good idea at the time, but it wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't in the long run. Uh, then when I went back active duty, I told them that uh, I wanted to change my job. Uh, and they said, and I was only in the reserves for about eight months. And uh, I went to the recruiter and said, I want to change my job. And he's like, you can't. I was like, okay. And I joined anyway. Um, and, and so it's really uh, the, the jobs, who was logistics in the Army? And, and it kind of stuck. But there are other choices that I had. Uh, I could have changed my MOS after my first enlistment, but I chose to jump out of airplanes. Um, you know, uh, could have... Uh, changed my job another time. I could have, uh, I was on recruiting duty. I could have stayed a recruiter, but I wanted to go to combat. So really all the uh, excitement, adventure, and really wild things was uh, the, what kept me being a truck driver. You know, and, and I don't really, um, I don't regret it in the long run. I really enjoyed sort of the problem solving thing, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And why did you choose to go from the reserves to active duty? Well, I, uh, uh, my father convinced me that I was too smart for the Army. That I think those were his little wor literal words. And, uh, and he said, you need to go to college. My son's got to go to college and get everything that I didn't get and, and so on. Uh, so we, I did. Uh, so I did a semester of college, um, and I did as well as I thought that I would have done anyway, which was not good at all. Uh, so I tried one semester of college, uh, and I was living in my dad's basement, and I was working like at a pizza parlor. I mean, it just, it, it wasn't, and really during that, I think it was like eight months I was in the reserves. I was doing everything I can. I was volunteering to go to extra, you know, on the, the weekend drills and, you know, going. So I, a lot of the time I was spending playing army, so to speak, and it was exactly, uh, so the more I tried it, the more I realized it was what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I had sort of the same conversation with my dad that I had with my mom. Uh, the year before, and I was like, um, you know what, Dad, I, I think I'm going to you know, go ahead and do the, the Army. At this point, he had realized, yeah, it's probably going to be best, and um, you know, go ahead. And, I mean, not that it, it, it wasn't like a blessing thing, but it was, uh, he said, yeah, that may be it. Uh, and uh, when I went in again, they gave me a choice to be a truck driver in Texas or a truck driver in Germany, uh, and I said, I can go to Texas anytime, so send me to Germany, and that's, uh, that was my first duty station. What base in Germany? So we were in uh, Mannheim, Mannheim, Germany. Uh, it was uh, West Germany, uh, sort of an industrial town, but uh, our, our barracks was uh, old converted uh, World War II German Army barracks, um, Turley barracks. It's now closed down. A lot of stuff's closed down in Germany, but it was down in the middle of Mannheim, and it was, uh, uh, for me, you know, I'd traveled a little bit, but, you know, being on my own, first time in Germany, and, and it, was, it was a great experience. I loved it. Um, so you deployed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, where did you deploy to? So uh, during that enlistment in the first three years I was in, um, in uh, mid-95 or late-95 in the fall, I think, they had signed the Dayton Peace Accords for the, uh, the Balkan War, to stop the Balkan War. So the Serbs and the Croats and the Bosnians were all separated. Um, and then um, NATO pushed in to Bosnia with the implementation force. So I was part of uh, Operation Joint Endeavor, which was the first unit or first uh, uh, boots on ground in Bosnia. So I spent a year in Bosnia, uh, going between Hungary, Croatia, and Bosnia. Um, it was, uh, you know, we got hostile fire pay. Um, there was a little bit, but it, it wasn't that bad. Um, you know, I think one guy said that somebody shot at him once, but we think he was just trying to buck for a, you know, a, a combat ribbon or something. But I mean, it was still, it was, uh, it was dangerous. But um, then after that, I was actually uh, in Germany again. So I went to Bragg and then went to Germany and Germany in 9-11. Uh, and I had uh, wanted to re-enlist to go to Fort Campbell, where my uncle was. I knew we were going to deploy. The Army decided to send me to recruiting duty instead. Uh, so then after leaving recruiting duty, I came here to Fort Carson, and that's where we really started to deploy. So I was in Iraq from... Uh, uh, 06 to 07 for 15 months, so one of those 15-month tours uh, during the surge, at the beginning of the surge. 12-month uh, tour in Afghanistan uh, in 2009-2010 in uh, Regional Command East. Uh, then another short tour, about nine months from 2011-2012 in Kabul. Uh, then I finished out with uh, 10th Special Forces Group and uh, did a uh, deployment to North Africa at the end of my career. Out of all those deployments, um, you know, which one was maybe the most meaningful or you learned the most from or or maybe you learned a little bit of everything from every deployment because everything has, you know, a different feel. Every, you know, every country is different. But which one kind of just sticks with you the most? Well, you know, and that's uh, things stick with us for different reasons, right? You know, um, the two most significant deployments for me were the uh, first one I uh, to Iraq and then the first one uh, to Afghanistan for different reasons. Um, and they were also the worst, right? You know, and this was uh, uh, something that I've seen that I work with veterans that they were the worst times of our lives, but they were also the best times of our lives. I mean, I, I literally... Um, I think that my favorite deployment was, um, was the Afghanistan deployment. Uh, and it's the one where we lost the most people, and it's the one that was the hardest, and we got in the most firefights and, and everything else. So um, it really it was that uh, Iraq, it was very much a, um, we were being attacked, but it was indirect fire. It was, uh, uh, we had some patrols, but it was all sort of just <laughs> sitting there pinned down being helpless. Uh, whereas um, I had the opportunity in Afghanistan to, to lead patrols and to lead soldiers in combat and to do what I had always wanted to do anyway. And so um, I think out of all five of those deployments, those two are probably the most meaningful. Where in Iraq were you? So um, I, I was in beautiful downtown Baghdad. Um, and, and I always say that, uh, you know, I think about the, the Vietnam veterans who would consider going back to Vietnam after so many X amount of years and things like that. Um, I don't ever plan on going back to Baghdad. I am not um, going to do that. I, I wouldn't mind, I think, going back to Afghanistan and going back to RC East. It was a beautiful country, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would not. I don't ever intend on going back to Baghdad. So you saw multiple deployments, so, and you kind of described a little bit how they differed from each other, but did it, how did it change you as a person? 
You know, I mean, and it was that incremental thing. You don't notice that you're changing, right? You know, you don't notice how, how things happen over time. Um, uh, I did recall um, after I came back from Iraq, um, I was hypersensitive, obviously. Um, you know, is, and this isn't a macho thing, but the indirect fire was so common, it just it, it ended up not bothering you after a while, right? I didn't even react. Um, but yet I come back here to Colorado Springs and a dog barks behind me and lightning comes over the mountains, you know, and I'd climb the walls, right? You know, so there was, there was that kind of thing. I recall we had gotten back from, um, from Iraq in December right before Christmas and uh, my wife uh, wanted, to, uh, wanted me to, to come to church with her. She'd found a new church while we were deployed and I said, okay. Uh, so I had literally just been in Iraq like three days before. Um, and uh, where we were at, we lived our life in like a, a four square mile area. We went from one base to another, but everything, like we knew where everything was, we knew everybody. So we get to this, and it's, you know, it's one of the, the larger churches here in Colorado Springs, big auditorium, and uh, the kids were small at the time, so they go off to kids' church, and then uh, we go to sit down, and she was like, oh, I'm going to go to the bathroom, so she takes off, and then all of a sudden I realize that I'm in this huge room, with hundreds of people that I don't even, like the hair started standing up on the back of my neck and, uh, you know, and it, it really started to get to me. So is I think the size um, uh, of, of everything when I came back, you know, the, how, how far apart everything was, how big everything was, where life was very small um, when I was in, uh, when I was in Iraq, and, and that was a challenge. And then again, that just sort of, you, you, you dealt with it because you have more deployments coming up and you just kind of continued on that cycle. Can you describe how you felt coming home from combat and if there was anything you missed from your civilian life? You know, uh, I always miss Slurpees. You know, there's no Slurpees in Baghdad or, or, or Afghanistan, right? I mean, so, I mean, it could be like three degrees outside and I would go get a Slurpee because that was, I mean, it, but it's just, it's those weird things that you don't realize what you miss. Yeah, they have burgers over there, but, um, you know, it, so it, things like that. Um, for us, there wasn't a year from 2006 to 2013 uh, where I, I wasn't gone part or even all of the year. Um, and so coming back, um, it was just preparing for another deployment. Uh, we came back in uh, 2007. Uh, then the Army sent me away during the summer of 2008. By the time I came back, um, uh, that fall, we were already preparing to go to Afghanistan again. They gave me a platoon, ramp it up, you know, so it was, there really wasn't much time to reintegrate. It was, okay, let's, you know, suck it back in and, and continue to move on. Um, after my um, first tour in Afghanistan, I took over the company as a first sergeant, so I had that going on. Uh, then had a deployment to Afghanistan, came, you know, so it was, it, it was really sort of a rapid pace, um, and you just kind of fell into the rhythm, uh, and, and didn't, uh, um, it didn't really reintegrate completely because you knew you had another foot out the door. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing is that, as I always remembered, is like, you're kind of like this robot mm -hmm. where you don't take too much time to think about anything that you're seeing or doing. You just do mm -hmm. it and keep moving forward. But when that time stops and now you have time to think about it, how did that affect you? Well, I, I, I kind of always uh, describe it as like those moving sidewalks at the airport, right? You're just standing, you're just in it, and it's carrying you along. And then all of a sudden you're at the end. And if you're not prepared for that end, you're going to stumble and fall flat on your face. 
Um, and, and that's sort of what the whole deployment cycle was. Um, and, and it was, when I retired, I had a, a long time and it didn't seem like a long time. And so it was, it was challenging for me uh, to sort of make that shift, that mindset shift to the Army is what I did, it's not what I do. You know, a soldier was what I was, it's not what I am. And so when did you actually leave the military or retire from the military? So I retired uh, in August of 2014. And what was that process like? Um, I, had, uh, I had come back from the tour in North Africa and uh, had an opportunity to, to take an even larger role. They wanted me to stay in and go the next year. Uh, I'd hurt myself on a jump uh, in 2012 um, as I was jumping with 10 Special Forces. Uh, and I needed to jump twice more after that just to make sure I hurt myself all, you know, really good because that's what we do. Uh, and, uh, and so I was, I was battling a pretty nagging injury, um, a foot ankle injury, um, and, uh, and I decided to sort of, this was the time to hang it up. So the fall of 2013 is when we sort of started making the steps towards that. Uh, and I dropped my retirement paperwork the, uh, the summer of 2013. Uh, and, and it was good. I always say that I sort of had a, a, a very blessed and, and easy transition because I got a job right away sort of in the field doing what I wanted to do, working with homeless veterans and uh, supporting veterans afterwards. And I had a really good unit uh, that supported me in that and, and sort of let me, let me pursue that. Uh, and so it was, it, it was really good. Um, and at the same time, like many other veterans, I've, I'm on my second job since I retired, and I've you know, been out for three years and, uh, or four years now. So um, it, it's still, even though it was a good transition and I, I maintained support and everything else, um, for me, it seemed like it was challenging. And did you think, like, you know, some people feel like they're getting out before they're, they're truly done? Did you feel truly done with your military service? You know, I, I think I did. Um, you know, uh, I, I sort of, here we are in Colorado, you know, I, I described it as Peyton Manning. Yeah? I went out at the top of my game, right? Um, I, I had a great unit, 10 Special Forces Group. It literally was the, the best, uh, one of the best times that I had in the military. I had a great deployment to North Africa, was able to do things that I'd been wanting to do for my entire career. And, you know, and so it was, um, I, I think I was at that time where, you know, everything um, was good. Also, um, just uh, because of whatever, you know, uh, the Army's process, um, I spent more time as an E-7 in the Army than I did the rest of the ranks. I was an E-7 for 11 years, and, you know, uh, so I got promoted early, and then I just stayed in E-7 for, you know, whatever reason, the promotions didn't happen. Uh, and as time went on, you know, I could have stayed in another three or four years and drove a desk, but that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, and, uh, and the injury sort of told me that I wasn't 25 years old anymore. And so, um, yeah, I, I pretty much decided, and that was the thing I think that helped me shift. This chapter of my life is done. What can I do to start the next chapter of my life? And would you, what kind of advice would you give to others that are transitioning out of the military today? Um, well, a couple of different things is, as you well know, you know, me is, uh, it don't ignore the mental health aspect. I mean, it's, it's, it's critical to, um, our transition, the foundation of that. 
um, a, a lot of people will focus on make sure you get your resume and dress for success and um, you know networking and all these things and those are really like secondary level stuff if we don't have our mindset right if we don't have if we don't make that shift if we don't decide that we need to do something else um, if we are struggling with PTSD depression substance abuse and that gets out of control then we're not going to be as effective as we are so that's one thing is is make sure that you know um, your your headset right uh, but the other thing is don't try to do too much because that was a big thing that I tried to do. Uh, I tried to fill my space after the after I retired with a bunch of different things. And I started throwing things up against the wall and they all started to stick. And I very quickly found myself overwhelmed by all the commitments that I had. Uh, and I sort of gone through cycles of that, you know, so I'll, I'll pull back from something and then I'll start to ramp it up and then I'll pull back. And I think I'm probably on my third cycle of that right now since I retired of just, you know, you want to do, you know, we're go, 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 you're doing so much. Uh, and then, it, so it's finding balance in what you're doing in your post-military life. And how do you think your time in the military affected you? Uh, we're veterans for now, you know, always. I mean, there's, we're, we're not ever going to be not veterans, right? Um, we're no longer soldiers or, or, you know, airmen or Marines or anything like that. And we're never going to be a civilian, so we're with this different third thing that has a totally different uh, uh, type of experiences called a veteran. And so, uh, I see things through my uh, my my veteran lens, a veteran filter. Um, you know, I, I we're looking at the mountains, and I'm seeing the shadow of the clouds in the mountains, and it's reminding me of the shadow of the clouds in Afghanistan on the mountains. Right, those really bright days with the really dark blotches, the clouds on there. Um, you know, it's the things that happen in our community that, uh, that remind us of things that we had in the military that, uh, that it'll never go away. So it's, it's really that is we see things, we hear things, we think of things differently because we're from a different culture. I mean, it literally is as if we went, if I went and lived in, in Ireland for 22 years, right? And spoke English, right? But it was still a totally different culture. And now I have to come back here and, and I think sort of differently. It's not completely different, but I think of different things. I dream of different things. I enjoy different things um, than, than people around us that have never served. And is there anything you wish civilians understood about military service? Well, uh, we're not all John Rambo, right, or, or G.I. Jane. We're not all, not all crazy combat vets. You know, it's those stereotypes that, that a lot of people have. Um, I, I just came back from a, a conference, and one of the people were talking about a veteran who had told her that, uh, yeah, everybody goes to see American Sniper and, and all these great movies, and, yes, you're heroes and stuff like that. But if I talked about that same thing at my local barbecue and I was sitting next to somebody telling people those same exact things, they would think I'm a monster. They would be afraid of me. My wife would be angry at me. Um, and so there's this idea that we're either these heroes or maybe that we're, you know, we're going to go postal, we're going to snap, um, or, or even that, oh, you poor baby, right? You know, I, I heard somebody the other day tell me, oh, it must have been so traumatic for you in all your deployments. Well, the, the third deployment was was nothing, right? My, my bathroom was in the same room I, or same building I slept in. That wasn't a deployment, right? And, and so it, it's everybody assumes these certain things about veterans, but it, when it comes to veterans, just because we're combat veterans doesn't mean we're crazy. Right, and you wrote a book, Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. I did, you I did. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, and so it's uh, the, the book has kind of emerged out of the... Um, 
uh, out of a, so I have a blog and I have a podcast as, as you well know. Um, and so, uh, a couple years ago, I started trying to figure out how am I going to help veterans on one hand, understand more about veteran mental health. It's not Freud on the couch. This, we're not going to talk about your mother, unless your mother's a problem. We could talk about your mother, but it's not going to be something that we have to sit here for 30 years and, and just hash things over. Um, so helping them understand more about veteran mental health, but also helping, um, my wife doesn't want to ask me questions about what I did. Uh, other veteran spouses don't want to ask me questions about what they did. They still want to know. Uh, and so it was a way to sort of help spouses, uh, family members, parents, uh, children even, understand what their, their service member went through. Uh, and then I, I have a really big focus on those people that are trying to help veterans as far as mental health counselors. They really need to understand that. They need to understand that we do think of things differently. And that's not wrong and it's not bad. Uh, so I, I started in, um, it was February 2016, I thought that I would run out of stuff to write about, um, and here it is two years later, and I haven't run out yet. Uh, and so um, I, I put, and I've been doing it for a couple years, but just recently I put those, uh, a lot of them together uh, in a book um, and, uh, and published it, and it's on Amazon. And, uh, and, and it's, it's really grouped around different uh, different factors like uh, how you build resilience. How do we how do we build skills that we need um, to to navigate post military life? What do you do if it's one o'clock in the morning and your eyes pop open and you know thunder and lightning's going off in your head? What do you do with that? So uh, there's things like that, but it's also to look at um, you know veteran mental wellness instead of mental illness. Right? It's you're, we're not crazy. It doesn't mean we're crazy. It doesn't mean we're sick. Um, maybe we're functioning less well at one point, we can function better if we take advantage of that. So um, it, it's been pretty interesting. Um, I, I've gotten uh, some good feedback of, uh, uh, of the book, and, and uh, I don't know, it's kind of weird. I'm actually looking forward to reading it. I love reading your blogs and listening to your podcasts, and I think one of my favorite blog posts that you've written about um, that really hits home, but I think it's just, it's so real and raw that so many people, not just military, but civilians can use in their lives is how to talk to a veteran who's contemplating suicide. Mm -hmm. And I think you just, you, you hit, you hit it home with that one. Um, cause I think so many people are afraid to talk about suicide, to talk about PTSD, um, but that's what creates that stigma around it. And I think you're doing a great job breaking that barrier around mental health. No, I appreciate that. That was, uh, that was a, a, a little bit of a difficult one to write. I, I was, um, when I was in the army, when I, at the end of my career, I was doing suicide intervention training. Uh, and so there's a program applied suicide intervention skills training. Uh, and that's a lot of what that, um, that article was written off of. And, uh, um, the, the news outlet, Task and Purpose, uh, um, it, it's a, a fairly well-known news outlet right now. Uh, one of their editors reached out to me and said, hey, I'd like for you to write a, a, a book or a, or a story uh, about this. And he gave me, there was a, um, an article that was written, I think, in the Philadelphia newspaper about, you know, how does a doctor um, break the death of a loved one, right, or something like that. And it was, it was really along the same thing. It was very raw and it was very real. Uh, and at that point, um, I had uh, in probably engaged in four or five different suicide interventions 
one of them, to be honest, uh, being my father. Um, and, and way before I even considered being a mental health professional, um, uh, he was in a, a very dark place. And, and we didn't, nobody knew what to say. We were in Germany at the time, uh, and nobody really knew what to say. Nobody really knew how to react to it. And those of us in the military, you know, come out and ask, come out and, and deal with it. And, uh, and I did, right? And so I called him, and, and we got him some help, and we got him connected with the right people. Uh, and then that sort of started me down a path. Uh, and then there, was, uh, there were a couple more interventions, one of which I, I described in that article, um, that, uh, that if a veteran is suicidal, it's a very immediate thing, and, and you just have to take the time and listen to their story and why is, I mean, so many people automatically want to react and sort of get it off their plate and let's, yes, you have to get involved with the correct, uh, you know, um, uh, authorities or anything like that, but um, really what we need or what veterans need at that point is just to hear, somebody to hear what the problem is and, and not jump to or snap to judgment. Yeah, I wish I could. Um, I try to share that one as much as I can. So um, how did you meet your wife? So I, maybe she should have come in because she has a very different version of this particular story. I was on leave uh, from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I was going to my cousin's wedding, uh, and uh, I had left late uh, from Fort Bragg, and I was planning on driving all the way to Nashville and then staying overnight and then driving into St. Louis. Uh, but a storm had kicked up, and, uh, and I got into Knoxville um, and... Uh, um, decided, you know what, it's kind of early. Let me find a hotel that maybe has got a bar. I'll have a couple of drinks and then, you know, go. Uh, stopped off at one place. There was no bar. Um, went on down the next one um, and uh, got there. Right. So there was comedy club there in the basement or in the, the lobby of the, the hotel. And I got there right for the early show. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to wait. I'm going to sort of uh, uh, go upstairs, shower, whatever. And there was a later show. So um, went downstairs for the later show, and we were standing there. And uh, um, my wife, who who she is now, my wife, but um, she was there with somebody else, and I was sort of like that, you know. I was like, is she with that guy, right? You know, we we see that kind of, you know. I'm like, man, she's she's pretty cute. That guy's a, you know, it. Um, Jerry, Jerry's a friend of mine now, or, or, or you know, was a friend of ours. And sorry, Jerry, if you're listening to this, but he knows that we talked about it. So, so I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, catching her eye and, and we're standing in line. Uh, and then uh, later on, and she won't disagree with this part of it. She actually came up to me. She came up to me and saw that I had some tattoos on my chest and she was bold and she was like, what are your tattoos? And, you know, so we started, started talking. Um, and, uh, it turns out she was a sheriff's deputy, a Knox County sheriff's deputy. Uh, at the time, and uh, she was out with a group of fellow deputies, and I was there by myself, so I joined them uh, with their party, and and um, uh, we spent, I mean, we hung out, uh, talked all night, um, and uh, and I left uh, the next morning, um, went back home to St. Louis, and uh, told my mom that uh, that I, I think I found the woman that I wanted to marry, and she freaked out. She did freak out. That was an initial freak out on, on that particular one. Uh, but then, uh, it literally, I mean, and, and this is the, it was literally love at first sight. I mean, it was, there's, there's nothing that it, um, it ever could have done. Uh, went back, um, and spent uh, the weekend with her, um, back in Tennessee, cut my leave short or cut my, my trip to, to St. Louis short, 
Uh, and, um, and that was March of 98. Seven months later, we were married. Uh, I proposed to her at her best friend's wedding. Um, we tried to set it up where uh, I kept, caught the garter and she caught the bouquet. It didn't work out too much, but uh, I proposed at that point. Uh, and then we were married in January of 99. Uh, and we've been married ever since. So, so sweet. <laughs> it is. Well, it's a, and I think that's fairly close to what her version of the story is because I gave her credit to approach me first. That's, that's literally what happened. So what was your relationship with Sergeant Wolf? So uh, Sergeant Wolf um, was, uh, was another uh, NCO in our company, in Alpha Company 704th BSB, uh, and uh, she died October 25th uh, in Afghanistan in uh, 2009, and uh, she was in another unit, or she was in another platoon of ours, um, but uh, her and her husband, Josh, were both deployed at the same time, um, and she was a, a, a great leader, great person. Uh, I recall seeing her and Josh, they didn't both have to deploy, um, and both of them volunteered to do so. Um, she actually, um, she could have stayed back and take care of their kids, um, but they, they left their kids with, uh, with I believe, uh, I think it was his family. Um, and uh, in, in one particular mission, um, she, um, she didn't necessarily need to be on the mission, but she wanted to do her part. She wanted to get on the mission. Uh, and, uh, and I sort of argued against it. Um, and then I, I was convinced, I don't even say allowed myself to be convinced, but I was convinced to, to be able to put her on the mission. Uh, our commander and first sergeant, you know, it's, so there, a lot of us, um, you know, feel some, some guilt, some regret around that. Um, uh, and then uh, she was on patrol as a radio operator in the platoon leader's vehicle uh, when uh, they came under attack and uh, RPG uh, pierced the side of the vehicle and, um, and, uh, and she died. Um, and, and, you know, that she was one of, um, three or four losses, but the one that was really closest to me, the one that was, was in our unit. Um, and uh, shortly after that, um, the unit uh, changed its name to, uh, the changed its, its uh, um, motto, I get to the Wolf Pack, right, in, in uh, honoring her. Uh, later that uh, tour, we uh, put up a memorial, and now the memorial, they brought it back on a later tour, and so now it's here at... Uh, Fort Carson uh, in the unit area, and uh, it's a great person. That's that's nice. That's um, I know sometimes the survivor's guilt is is tough, and especially when you're in a leadership position and um, someone like that really wants to do their job and go out, and you have to make that decision. So, and you know, and it is. I mean, and I think that's we say that there's probably 30 of us all felt responsible for what happened there. Um, and, and we also have to recognize that, uh, that there's responsibility to go around and, and that's part of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's neither her name nor that date, you know, of course will ever leave, you know, our minds or, or our thoughts or our hearts. Um, and, and that's, that's part of the duty. Is there anything else you want to say? I don't know. I mean, we could probably talk for hours, but we don't have hours. But uh, no, I think we're good. Great. Thanks for sharing your story. I have a, a question, and you don't have to go into this if you don't want to, Dwayne, but you mentioned um, you intervened with your uh, father's suicidal mm -hmm. inclinations. Is that something you 
would want to, in this space, elaborate more on the, specifically how that conversation went down with him, to Jim? So the idea of, um, I, I try to think of, um, it was probably 2000, 2001, um, and yeah, it, it was definitely before 9-11. Uh, and he was going through some rough patches. I mean, he never, he, he eventually did recover from Vietnam. He, he lived, the final years of his life were really, really good. They were amazing. Um, but, uh, but he still had a lot of challenges. He came out from Vietnam and he became a city cop in St. Louis in the 70s. So we don't know where, you know, Vietnam ended and, and the trauma from the street began. But uh, he was struggling a lot. And, uh, and, and we had... Um, and my sister had reached out to me and basically said, you know, we think something's going on. And uh, ultimately, I was the one that uh, called him and, and came out and asked him. Um, it, really, and that's one of the things that for that was probably one of the most difficult things I had ever done in my life. Uh, the week after that, after hearing that, um, wasn't eaten, couldn't sleep. You know, I just that memory kept. I mean, I recognize now it was traumatic stress reaction. Um, I did at that point reach out to somebody and kind of talk about it and, and deal with it at that point. But uh, um, a very close family member of mine had literally been in a place where, um, you know, death was imminent. Uh, and I intervened. And, and while it, it went well for him and, and he got the help that he needed, um, there was also a need for care for myself. And I think I put that at the bottom of that article was, was basically like after you're done um, uh, working with somebody who's, who's uh, been through that, uh, you really need to take care of yourself because it's, uh, it's a very heavy burden to bear, uh, one that we bear gladly, but one that, um, that's, that's pretty significant. Thanks for sharing your story with me. Thank you for having me share my story with you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. That was a good time, and hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. I gave you a look at my military service and showed that there's often an impact when we returned from combat. Not that we didn't know that. I deliberately went into the project to be as open as I could be, and I think that came through, from talking about how we lost Sergeant Wolf to my own experience with my father. Hopefully this will give those of you hesitant to tell your own story some motivation to reach out and start talking. It's only when we start talking about it and moving beyond stuff that we're able to actually thrive in our post-military life rather than just survive. If you're interested in hearing more about the Military Voices Initiative, head over to storycore.org and search military. I'll also get the link into the show notes, which can be found at VeteranMentalHealth.com and ChangeYourPOV.com. One of the things that Jen and I talked about in this conversation was the book Combat Vet Don't Meet Crazy. I've gotten a lot of great feedback, and if, like Jen, you can't wait to read it, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash Combat Vet book and pick one up for yourself. I've also been telling you about some of the things we're doing to spread the word about veteran mental health and wellness and trying to get this information out in as many ways as we can. I've started to develop content for your Echo device, and we've got some good stuff over there. To see it all and more to come, check out VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash skills. Coming up next week in the entire month of September, I'm going to change things up a little bit. As you may or may not know, September is Suicide Prevention Month. I've gathered together a group of subject matter experts on the topic of suicide prevention and awareness, and we're going to start releasing those episodes next week. You'll find some great information, not necessarily veteran-specific, but looking at the topic of veteran suicide from a subject matter expert point of view. 
Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. And until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Your arm and a gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. Yeah.
It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.